Welcome to Failing Forward. Today, I have Pari with me. She's been a guest in the past, and we're really excited to have her back and joining us again. Pari, can you introduce our, yourself for the audience today? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Emily. Hi, everybody. I'm Pari Chaudhary, Senior Technical Advisor for Impact and Learning with CARES Health Equity and Rights team. And talk to us about the example you're going to be describing today. Yeah, so today I was hoping to talk about the AMAL program. Um, AMAL, which stands for Adolescent Mothers Against All Odds, is an adolescent-focused program, particularly um, working on achieving sexual and reproductive health and well-being of young married girls in um, crises contexts, specifically contexts where the crisis that um, the country's experiences is long-term or protracted. And so... Um, the essentially we identified a few years ago um, using Syria as uh, the starting point that, you know, adolescent girls uniquely experience a set of vulnerabilities within crisis context. I mean, of course, everybody does, but girls in particular have um, a set of risks that, if not mitigated immediately, sort of compound on one another to build a risk factor. And so one of the areas that we saw um increased outcomes in in Syria was, you know, like a lot of early forced marriage within Syria, which was leading to a lot of adolescent pregnancy, um, which we all know can significantly increase maternal mortality in places where reproductive health care is not easily available. And so the AMAL program was designed as a response to that gap um, to be able to work um, with adolescent girls and also the societal and familial networks of girls. So community members, girls, mothers-in-law, their husbands, and so on, to be able to create not just an increase in uh, health service offerings, but also a community and social environment that's encouraging girls to be able to access those health services in the first place. So adolescent girls who have experienced an early or first marriage in a crisis setting has to be one of the hardest groups of people in the world to work with. And thinking about that in the context of a social norm environment that is not set up to support any of the things that you just described, what gave us the confidence that that was something we could tackle at all? Oh, that's a fair question. Um, Well, the first thing I'll say is that adolescent girls as a whole population are obviously at additional risk, but even within that subpopulation, there are groups that have um, their own vulnerabilities. So for example, as you mentioned earlier, pregnant adolescent girls or married adolescent girls or um, adolescent girls who have one child already. So each of these subgroups um, have their own set of risk factors. And so because of how large and pervasive an issue this is, and also how difficult it is to tackle, what we did was we first decided to focus in on one particular subgroup. So we worked with married adolescent girls. And next we did one of the things that I believe Kara does best, which is where we looked to see what has worked in the past and tried to apply it to this situation. So we brought in evidence, not just from previous care programs, but programs that have dealt with adolescent issues and crisis contexts all around the world, from Save the Children, from UNICEF, from UNFPA. And we not only borrowed from those programs and other data, data-based um, designs, we actually invited um, the folks who have been involved in these spaces at other organizations to come and co-create this program together. So the idea was that Sure, this is something that has not 
been accomplished at scale before and we don't know that it will work but we're going to do the best of our ability by bringing all the right people to the table and creating a program that is as responsive and dynamic as possible for us to be able to adapt to whatever challenges might come and that's actually one of the I think competitive advantages that the ML program has compared to other adolescent sexual reproductive health programs in crisis contexts is that it has continuous quality improvement mechanisms built into the program. So it allows for uh, adaptive management to occur while the program is still ongoing rather than having to wait until, you know, the program ends. And it also greatly um, includes and actually like in an institutional way creates opportunities for involvement of adolescent girls in the programming itself. So not only did we bring in people around the world and at organizations of repute that we believed were the right folks to inform a program like this, but we also asked the actual participants themselves about what the program is achieving and whether it's designed in a way that makes sense for them. So you talked about learning from things that had worked in the past and and really casting a wide net to see that. Was there any learning you had to do about things that had not worked in the past? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, we talk often about in the adolescent space, uh, we use this term called meaningful participation of adolescence, which is a term that's used to describe the inclusion of your target beneficiary group in not just the implementation of the project, but also the design, the evaluation, the um, feedback mechanisms, and so on. And while meaningful participation of adolescents is something that several organizations around the world are investing in, it's very rare that it occurs in a humanitarian crisis setting. And we know that why, right? It's not because organizations are not interested in doing that. It's just that oftentimes in crisis contexts, there's a lot more immediate needs that are required, like for example, example, shelter, water, and food. And so even in long-term crisis settings, um, I think it's harder to find the resources, both time and financial, to be able to say, let's do a more intentional job of actually including the beneficiaries in this program when we know that even delaying this by a month could actually have long-standing impacts on people. So one area where we needed Um, to sort of design it on our own based on what we knew or hoped would happen um, was this arena of creating the platforms that inclusively allowed girls to be a part of this program. Um, And so we did it. And I will say like one of one of the ways in which we worked on it was in each country where we ran them all, we first ran a pilot and then we used the results of the pilot to also inform what the rest of the scale up should look like. And sometimes the things that were adapted were that platform that girls had. So it looked different in each of the countries um, while also maintaining fidelity. But uh, that was one arena where we were definitely operating a little bit in the realm of the unknown. And you talk about that adapting as you went. What were some of the main challenges you experienced or the main failures that you had to adapt around as the project went on? Yeah, absolutely. So I think first, before I get into that, I should probably describe a little bit about the components of the program, because it'll make a little bit more sense if I do that. So AMAL is a three component program. The first component um, is where the adolescent girls are involved themselves. So it's called the Young Mothers Club. And it is essentially like a peer based group made up of um, married adolescent girls who are either first time mothers or are pregnant. And they undergo a, an eight-week curriculum that's focused on 
issues of well-being, communication skills, negotiation, family planning, education, pregnancy education, and so on by a trained facilitator. Um, select girls who then graduate from the eight-week Young Mothers Club curriculum and are still interested in taking a more active role in the program are enrolled in an additional three weeks of curriculum where they are trained to be AMAL leaders. So they go through a series of sessions where they are taught how to self-advocate, how to sort of present and represent the voices of a group, um, and essentially how to take on a more leadership role within their communities. The second component of the program is called the Community Dialogues. And so that's um, a seven-week-long curriculum where the community members that girls um, have within their societies, for example, their husbands, their mothers-in-law, religious leaders, teachers, and so on, are invited to be part of a series of reflective dialogues. And the intention behind those dialogues is that over the course of seven weeks, these community members are able to interrogate their own values and beliefs around the norms that affect girls in their communities. And then finally, the last component is the health provider component, because we all recognize that you can't really influence someone's health-seeking behaviors without also making sure that there is, in fact, health-seeking health that they can seek. And so um, we work on through a four-week curriculum with health providers that are that are designed to reduce their bias towards providing adolescent clients, especially with services related to family planning and reproductive health. And so um, all of the members of these three groups come together once a month in what's considered like a fourth subcomponent, which is called the community advisory group. So we have select members of the Young Mothers Club, select members of the community group, and select members of health providers that come together in this community advisory group where they um, are encouraged by care staff and facilitators to essentially like debrief how the program is going, what the community response has been, whether there's elements of the program that need to change. And so essentially every month there's this opportunity for active adaptation of the program and quality improvement as we go. Um, to answer your question now, one of the elements um, that we needed to adapt as we went was uh, essentially this, you know, health providers were only going through four weeks of curriculum and um, young mothers were going through eight up to 11 if they even did the leadership sessions, community members were going through seven. And what we realized was that um, four weeks for health providers may not be enough depending on what their baseline is. So for example, um, you know, especially in extremely conservative communities that don't often talk about sexual and reproductive health, health providers, even though they're providing reproductive health services, have often not actually received bespoke training in reproductive health at all. And so a lot of their own knowledge and information is based on what they hear from community members. And that is often times, as we know, you know, combined with misinformation and misconceptions and so on. And so one of the things that we learned across uh, the program was that it might take more than four weeks for us to reduce real biases among health providers, especially around long acting reversible contraceptives, because that there's um, a lot of, there's a dearth of misinformation around LARC. And um, so we had to adapt one of the programs by having an additional session just focused on busting myths related to that. Another example was that um, so Amal has thus far been implemented in Syria, Nigeria, and Somalia. It is about to also be implemented in three additional countries. Uh, but in Nigeria, for example, um, the adolescent girls 
had absolutely no problem presenting and representing their own issues in the community advisory groups. They were comfortable doing it. They felt like it was a safe space to do so and so on. In Syria, however, um, even though we created that active platform for girls to be able to elevate their own voice, they told us that they don't necessarily feel comfortable doing it with especially like men who are strangers to them. And so in some communities in Syria, we adapted the program by adding in like almost, they called it like a practice round. It was actually very sweet. So what the girls is, is that they identified that if they were able to talk to their own grandfathers about their issues first as like a practice, then they would feel more comfortable and also have supporters in the audience when they did it for the full community. And so that was something that we had not thought of previously. And the girls came up with that themselves. And that suggestion only came because we were hosting these regular community advisory group meetings where we would ex explicitly ask the girls what can be done or differently or changed or how their what level of comfort they were having, whether they were feeling heard or seen and so on. So those were a few examples of the things that we changed along the way. And if you think about where you hope it will go next, what are some things you would change or some lessons you know we need to apply as we move forward in this work? So one of the beauties of the Amal program is that while it was developed and designed by, you know, let's say Care USA or and Save the Children in the UN, um, <clears throat> the countries where it has now been implemented have really taken the program and made it their own. So it's it's a very sound example of you know locally developed and globally scaled um it started in syria and was essentially designed for the syrian context um and was piloted in syria in 2018 as just component one which is a young mothers club and then grew into the multi-component program that is now amal and then in Syria, because CARE does not operate within Syria itself, we partnered with multiple Syrian organizations, civil society organizations who are now doing this on the ground themselves with CARE as like their convener. And so um, it grew from, you know, two, two Syrian organizations doing this to now seven across multiple directorates in North Syria. And um, then that served as uh, the foundation for it to be scaled into Nigeria as well, and now Somalia. And so um, in terms of where I hope it goes in the future, I would love for Amal to be owned by the people on the ground who are really able to sort of make it um, what it needs to be for their own communities. And, and I mean that to say more than just like, oh, we're translating the toolkit to be in this language. We're doing that. I mean that, you know, when we've gone and done the evaluations of the program in Nigeria, for example, I am based in Care USA, and yet I had people in the communities in Nigeria saying that they knew my name because of how much, you know, we had just been talking to them and like trying to work with them to help them adapt it to their own spaces. And they will eventually be the experts in this program rather than us. And so I would love for there to be a situation where there's a learning exchange among the countries that have been able to do this on the ground and for them to be able to sort of build each other up and help each other expand and act as the technical experts and advice for folks to be able to do this across, um, you know, across multiple contexts. 
But I would say the even larger hope than that is for the girls themselves to be able to see Amal as their own program. And I say that because it's actually started to happen in Syria um, and it happened organically. So we had, because Amal has been going on in Syria now for a a few years, um, the girls who had, I'm going to use the word graduated, but graduated from the Amal program a year prior were now enrolling their younger sisters in the program. They were on their own, going and talking to their neighbors about it. They were forming groups and they would go into their um, neighboring communities and discuss about how Amal helped them and was important and so on. They were have also, we've heard from other humanitarian agencies that the girls have been taking larger spaces in their community to actively help with humanitarian aid distribution and so on. And I think so much of that is because of what was intended to be a family planning program, but ultimately has just led to feelings of agency and advocacy within adolescent girls in these communities that previously weren't really active um, or weren't allowed to be active rather. And so I would love for Amal to be like adolescent mothers against all odds by adolescents for adolescents. Um, and that would be truly the dream um, where of course, you know, we would still support with resources, but the girls were able to hopefully like run those programs for themselves and really make it what it could be. A lot of what you're describing there, true ownership by adolescent mothers in crisis settings, um, true local ownership and adaptation, that sort of constant adapting feedback, listening that's not typical. It's an aspiration lots of organizations have, lots of projects have. It's not something that we get right all the time. What were some of the things we had to do differently or some of our common preconceptions or ways of working we had to challenge and change in order to get there? So one of the absolute key things that I think fed into the program's organic ability to achieve this was the inclusion of beneficiaries in the program design workshops. I don't think that that's necessarily a revolutionary thing to suggest anymore. It's just revolutionary that it's actually implemented, you know? Um, And I say that simply to say that it is, it's hard sometimes for organizations, even like ours, to be able to secede control, to really truly recognize that we aren't maybe necessarily the people who know best in a particular situation. And so, um, but the AMAL program is really evidence of the fact that if you are really able to include the voices and opinions of the people who you're attempting to work with. That's gonna make your program, first of all, not only more relevant, but the community is automatically going to be more open to something that they have had a hand in rather than not. So I would say inclusion of um, the end population at the very beginning is probably a key um, piece of that puzzle. A second element to this is, you know, Again, not a new or surprising concept, but when you're talking about sexual and reproductive health, especially for girls, especially for in Islamic countries, which is all the countries where Amal has currently been implemented, it's not exactly the easiest topic to start talking about, especially with folks who just, even adults don't talk about these things, you know, in these communities. And so there was a significant amount of intention and time dedicated in towards the initial phase of Amal, as in the community engagement and buy-in. And one of the big lessons for us was that the ways in which you can accomplish community engagement and buy-in are completely different based on the setting in which you're attempting to um, implement. And of course, 
people would be like, oh, that's obvious. But no, what I mean is that even within Syria, even within the same community and space and locality, if you were implementing in a developed community versus in a refugee camp, you needed even a different kind of staff makeup to be able to do that. For example, when we were implementing in Idlib, um, that was that's a more developed community. And so when we went in, we needed a higher proportion of staff that were women to be able to talk to the women in the community and encourage the right kind of buy-in and essentially reduce the fears that mothers-in-law especially had around their daughters-in-law participating in these programs. In refugee camps, however, we needed a lot more male staff to be able to crack open into that space because all the camp managers were male and they refused to talk to our female staff. And normally this is such, this might seem like so contradictory to what we usually say, right? Which is that you should hire more equitable teams, especially more women on your teams and so on. But we realized that in some settings, actually we needed male staff to be not just present, but be at least the initial phase, phases of CARES pitch because otherwise people wouldn't even hear us. And that was, it was something that actually we, it took a little bit of failure for us to figure that out. Um, and so that was an interesting lesson is that like, sometimes it's not even in the things you do, it's just who you're bringing to the table even that can affect like the level of perception and the ways in which you're seen by the community. So that kind of adaptation requires admitting failure when failure is happening. How did we make that possible? I think one of the reasons why we think about Amal so often as an example of success is because we had from the beginning created a culture within our staff teams that it was very okay to tell us that something was going wrong, you know, um, and to talk about it. And we instituted very early on this concept of a learning exchange where once every quarter we would have all of the organizations that were implementing Amal within Syria come together and just essentially have like an, a facilitated Q&A where essentially the newer organizations would ask the more seasoned organizations about advice and help on how to do things. And um, the more seasoned organizations would share some of the challenges that are either still persisting and so on. And we would sort of try to brainstorm solutions together. And that's not to say that everything was hunky-dory radical transparency all the time, but I do think that it just normalizing that to a greater extent than we typically do created a space where people were a lot more comfortable voicing that things weren't going well. I will, however, say that so much of that is also your interpersonal relationships. For example, um, when we, when staff from Care USA would go do site visits. There was a lot more information and just honest conversation that was had than when we were on Zoom, you know? And unfortunately you could have the strongest relationships, but that's just what happens sometimes. And so I think the truth is that in order for us to really be able to fail forward and be able to create the situations where we are, acknowledging and making clear that it's okay that things are going wrong, you have to have a significant upfront investment in the relationships and the time spent and the normalization that there, this is not an audit, that evaluations are actually a helpful thing. And um, we are sort of, 
you know, to use high school musical as an example, we're all in this together, <laughs> regardless of what happens. And so um, I think part of, that was part of kind of what came out of that. And I will say that Syria piloting a lot of like the lessons and the failures for us sort of allowed us to approach other countries with this huge documentation of all the things that we had learned from. And they, and so again, it like very right off the bat normalized and created this like baseline of like, Oh, Hey, actually we are very comfortable talking about failure and also very comfortable prioritizing learning over success. And so, so much of that I think is ironically what contributed to the incredible success of the program which i haven't really mentioned yet so far but essentially like you know we saw massive increases across all the social norms that we measured and um, the health outcomes and we corroborated that with health facility data that showed a doubling of up the uptake of family planning amongst adolescents across all the catchment areas of amal which you know frankly i had to triple check because i was uh having a hard time believing that at first but I think that it's simply to show that one, this population is so deeply underserved that there has, hasn't been any sort of programming for this arena at all. So while a doubling might sound huge, it's actually just an increase in uptake from 7% to 14%. But you know, that's some that's even lower sometimes than com- other communities where they start. And so one, they're deeply underserved. Two, like the program did a good job of including the right voices that needed to be included. And three, that we were very open about the things that needed to be fixed and changed. And we had created a scenario where we could actually make those changes while the program was ongoing, rather than having to wait until the very end. And so there were a few things that I think to be frank, I don't even know if all of that was fully thought through at the beginning. It was just these things that we were intent on doing without without necessarily knowing like the impacts that each of those would have, but have since understood the critical nature of each of those elements towards the success of the program. And what are some of the challenges you're still facing? I think, unfortunately, it continues to be the big one, which is, you know, funding resources for continuity of programs. So Um, In Syria, Nigeria, and Somalia, as I said, we piloted the program and then were able to scale it up in all places. In Syria and Somalia, we were fortunate enough to have a a continuous runway from pilot to scale because the donors uh, had committed to that and would continue to be interested. In Nigeria, we um, had a situation where we had a donor who was very fully committed for the pilot. And the idea, even at the beginning, was that we would hopefully try and get a second donor to come in for the continuity. And unfortunately, that wasn't something that we were able to accomplish either because of lack of investment or lack of opportunity. But we, so we had a lapse between our pilot and now scale. So it's not to say that donors aren't interested. For example, in Nigeria, now we have another donor that has come on board for us to re-up the program. But obviously, we had a lapse between the closeout of the pilot and the launch of the next phase. And so we're having to, you know, we make up for our staff resources who have since left and reorient the community to this program and so on, which um, we would have been able to avoid if we had had more um, continuous funding. But I think that's a challenge for pretty much all programs. And one of the ways in which we have been working to solve that is we realized that um, compared to other initiatives, Amal is 
I would say a more affordable program than most. And so what we've been doing at CARE is we've been writing Amal and integrating it into other larger proposals where we think it makes sense as part of the programming. So for example, um, in Somalia, it's actually part of a much larger humanitarian um, proposal. And in Syria, it is also now being tested out as an integrated nutrition project as well. So, um, you know, there are there are ways in which we are solving those issues, but I think part of part of also what will get us there is just being able to continually invest in in data and learning to be able to show the evidence that the program is generating, and um, and through that be able to guarantee better and more continuous support. Are there any specific recommendations that? You- yeah, I have. I mean, I think I have three. Um, The first is that despite the fact that it might not seem like it, um, meaningful participation of adolescents is actually possible and also feasible within crisis contexts. That's number one. Um, Number two is that with and for should be our programming principle for adolescents in all programs. And that means that there should be an intentional design to include them um, at the start, and also make sure that there are mechanisms to ensure that the program continues to stay relevant for them. And then lastly, I would say that if you are trying to affect health outcomes for adolescents, um, in order to do so effectively, you have to engage their societal and familial networks in programming, because um not doing so will essentially put your programming in a vacuum and you'll continue to be subject subject to social norms that aren't necessarily uh, facilitating what you're trying to do. So if you also work on norms change while you're doing the health service offerings, that seems to be like the right combination of things to help generate impact. Is there anything you wanted to talk about that I didn't give you a chance to say? I just think that Amal is a magical example of what happens when you grant power to the right people. And um, I think that, you know, we, I'm sure that everyone who's been working in the NGO and development space has noticed that there's been a large shift towards localization recently, which is exactly the direction in which we should go. And I think that Amal just presents an example of how um, different players can leverage their different roles and expertise to create something that works for everybody. Um, And so I think a lot of us are still figuring out how exactly to do localization in a way that is respectful and grants, um, you know, ownership to the right folks. And I'm hoping that Amal serves as um, an example of that and can contribute towards people's understanding of how to work with vulnerable groups around the world. Well, thanks so much. A magical example is what you are always hoping for. Thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thanks, Emily. And to the audience, stay tuned. We'll have more Failing Forward after this.